I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm Ben Horton. It's great to have you with us on a blustery but beautiful day towards the beginning of April 2022. I'm doing quite well this week, I think. I'm certainly better than the start of the week where I had some quite severe jet lag. I will confess, after coming back from a conference in the US. I know it's a bit of a sort of not something to uh, be too sad about because I did have a lovely, lovely trip. My first work trip outside of the UK since before COVID-19. But yeah, it was a bit strange being back in UK time zones and not knowing what I was doing, who I was. Fortunately, I was off work, so I didn't make too much of a fool of myself. But on for this episode, it really is a pleasure to be joined by the director of Chatham House, Robin Niblett, for a conversation about his latest report, which looks at the progress that the United Kingdom has made in terms of shaping a new foreign policy a year after the publication of its integrated review in March 2021. We get into the ambitions that the UK has on the global stage, its key partners and alliances, the key threats facing the UK, and of course, the implications of the Ukraine crisis. I hope you enjoy listening. Okay, so now I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Robin Niblett, the Director and Chief Executive of Chatham House. Robin, thanks so much for coming back. Pleasure, Ben. Great to be here. Yeah, friend of the podcast, indeed. I think this is your third third episode. <laughs> yeah, I think it's my third, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've not put you off so far, but very glad to, to have you back in to talk about your latest publication, which came out just a week ago as we're recording, which is a new research paper titled Global Britain in a Divided World, which can be found on the Chatham House website now and is also linked in the show notes. So I wanted to use that paper really just for a quite wide-ranging discussion about where we are with UK foreign policy at the moment, which obviously sounds like an enormous question. Mm. But the starting point for this paper was the government's integrated review, which was published in March 2021, which set out a new vision for UK foreign and defence policy. Obviously, the context has changed remarkably in, in recent months, which we'll talk about in more depth later. But could you just start off by reminding our listeners about the key takeaways from the integrated review itself? Look, the integrated review is a very ambitious is a very ambitious document. It's an integrated review in security, defense, development and foreign policy. <laughs> so it's all of those dimensions excluding in the title at least trade, but trade did appear and uh, in, in the body of the report. And there was some talk in there, one of the big takeaways, the UK would be a superpower in science and technology. So it even went beyond those four domains into the economic uh, as well. And it's about integration. The idea was now that the UK had fully left the EU in the sense that by this point last year, the UK had also left the single market and customs union of the EU, not just the EU as an institution, that it was time for the UK to define a slightly different role or reassert its key objectives on the international stage. You've got to remember the timing was just after the Biden administration had been elected. And so 
an integrated review that was going to be released in October of 2020 ended up being held off till March 2021. Not just for that reason, but I think that was an important dynamic along with all of the COVID spillovers uh, that were taking place at that point as well. The review itself, of which I wrote this report and you know, testing testing the last year, the review is vast. It covers, uh, I describe it as the kitchen sink and the kitchen. Um, and so... Uh, what I did in this paper was try to boil down its objectives to four, as I saw, four clusters, which kind of pretty much track with some of the ways the review talked about it. Number one, the UK would be a country that would help support an international rules-based system. So that simply means that the kind of values that informed the founding of the UN and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights would continue to be the building block of international relations. That is contested, obviously. It was contested through the Cold War. It's contested now. But the British view was that's the best system. The UK is an upholder of it. And uh, that would be one of its key objectives. The second objective was that Britain would be a contributor to international security, but in particular to the security of uh, that rules-based, international law-based democratic system. And that meant committing itself to NATO. It talks about the UK being the UK's uh, would be uh, UK would be Europe's principal security ally. They called out Russia as the most acute threat to European and British security, correctly. But they also talked about a tilt to the Indo-Pacific. The word tilt meant to be a, in distinction to the pivot that the Obama administration had originally declared for American foreign policy to Asia. And so the tilt in the Pacific was a lean towards Britain committing itself more institutionally and security into the economy of, of that part of the world. The third area was in supporting what's called global resilience. Could the UK help the world deal with the big challenges to global welfare and well-being, climate change, global health, cyber governance, development, hence the development part of the integrated review. And the UK has, for the last decade at least, played a pretty leading role in all those areas on global health, one of the big funders of of Gavi, the uh, Vaccines Alliance, a big fund of the WHO, and uh, the former DFID, it was the largest as a percentage of GDP spender on development, big leader on climate change. So that was the third part of the agenda, contribute to the global resilience of the planet and especially of the poorer people in the world. And then the fourth element uh, was really to do with the economic environment and a desire to try to say that foreign policy is not just about foreign policy, it's about British citizens being better off. And this is where the government pulled together its trade agenda and that it would build up its trade relationships in Indo-Pacific, in, in Asia-Pacific area, you know, the idea of trying to strike a deal with the US. But it was part of that where the lean came more to the domestic politics, not just to British citizens, but the Brexit agenda, that now that the UK has left the EU, there were lots of big opportunities for Britain in that trade agenda around the world. So those are the four big buckets. Perfect. Thank you so much for setting all of that out. I'd like to ask a bit about where we went then. But before that, I wanted to sort of get your sense of the extent to which these are kind of stated ambitions. Mm. How far did you then see over the over the year strategies, specific policy platforms that actually take those forward? Was the UK committing to this in rhetoric or was it 
actually no, that's, that's, that's what precisely what I what I wanted to do with the paper was to dig into that to try because obviously the I wrote a paper a year ago about global Britain which as I describe it as a could and should paper you know what it could do what it should do but you're absolutely right the question is what has it been doing has it gone beyond the rhetoric and so that will get into the question a little bit of what the government has done and not done but what I would say is in terms of defense, well, let me step back. Let me take the order in which I gave it. Yeah, sure. In terms of that kind of international system, and is the UK contributing, it definitely went beyond the rhetoric. Now, it was helped because the UK was president of the G7, the group of seven countries, the biggest kind of, or were the biggest liberal democratic economies of the world, uh, US, Canada, Japan, uh, UK, Italy, Germany, France, plus the EU, so it's kind of G8, G7, but in any case. And the UK had the presidency of that last year. And they used it as a way of trying to gather together the main liberal democracies of the world. They then invited South Korea, India, Australia to join the group, and South Africa to join that group, and prepared in the lead up to it and through it a series of papers about how to develop critical infrastructure amongst a trusted community, how to think about supply chains for provision of critical goods, especially again in the technology space. They launched a sort of infrastructure investment project to compete with China's Belt and Road Initiative. And even that, it wasn't entirely rhetorical. The British government got rid of the thing called uh, the CDC and reply, replaced it with a different acronym, the BII, <laughs> British uh, International Investment, which in a way is going to be an infrastructure investment fund that will help poorer parts of the world by developing economies, in theory, that group, build up their infrastructure. And to team up with others, like the EU's Global Gateway or Biden's Build Back the World Better uh, initiative. So there were some practical things inside that big G7 agenda. Ditto on defence, where the UK increased its defence budget by a net extra $4 billion a year, which is a big bump up. Done a lot of work on NATO's northern partnerships and, and friends. Spent a lot of time, effort and money in the last year and before on building up Ukraine's military forces, which has turned out to have paid off, if you want to say that. But they also sent a carrier strike group out to the Indo-Pacific. They signed up to this AUKUS deal, Australia, UK, US deal on security uh, investments in a way, defense technology more. So, I mean, as you go through each of these lists, and I could say the same about the trade where they completed a number of trade deals and you could, you know, they definitely made positive steps. I would say on the global resilience agenda, however... That's the one place where the rhetoric did not keep up with the reality. And as you and others know, the decision to cut the UK's contributions to development spending from 0.7% of British GDP to 0.5%, I mean, that's a you know, 35% more cut. It's a cut almost exactly the same amount of money as the defence budget was increased by. So while the government followed through on its climate commitments and chaired a very successful COP, 26 summit in Glasgow in November, and there were some, we can talk about later, some real achievements made there. It really cut back on spending on global health, on global development, and in a lot of the countries and the parts of the world that the integrated review said were the priorities for the British government. Uh, Africa, Yemen, parts of the Middle East, and it really did undermine, I think, 
the integrated nature of the integrated review. And it started to make the integrated review look more selective and a little cruder, if I can put it that way. And that was obviously partly the government's political agenda, is to say it's a bit more national interest-based. But in that case, you know, don't call it an integrated review and have a big thing about development in the title. Something that I wanted to ask in sort of big picture stuff as well is about partners and alliances and the integrated review had a lot of detail again on the the countries that the authors thought the UK should be working with more constructively. But something that was talked about at the time was how it was somewhat ambivalent maybe or perhaps didn't give too much attention to to Europe, (laughs) particularly Mm. in this Mm -hmm. kind of post-Brexit context. And we've seen recently how important that issue has become, how coordinated European nations can be in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But then at various times over the last year, don't know how I would describe it, but there were these minor diplomatic spats that happened and a lot of attention of who was getting to have a picture with President Biden at the G7 and whether we're sort of sparring with French embassies on Twitter and those sorts of things. But but could you tell us a bit more about how you see this relationship between the UK and Europe developing? Is it something we should be concerned about, the extent to which the government feels it can engage in this kind of post-Brexit world? The relationship with the EU specifically continues to be very difficult. And it's partly, it is a political choice in the sense that under Boris Johnson, this is a government that's defined itself by arguing the UK needed to leave the EU because the EU is a failing institution representing not the future of the world. You know, the future of the world for Britain and the the term global Britain was slightly trying to make that point, that it needed to look beyond the EU, beyond continental Europe for its future. And, you know, it's very hard then to pivot around and swivel and say, right, now that we've, we're out of the EU and we're thinking about our global agenda, actually we need to think about the relationship with the EU and, and make it strong. So just as a mental construct, this government, obviously led by the person in Boris Johnson who led the, the Brexit campaign, it's a bit of mental gymnastics that, that I think even this prime minister is pretty good at mental gymnastics, you know, struggles and would struggle to do it, even if he wanted to do it. And I, my sense is that an element of antagonism is in his gut instinct about, as it is in a number of members of the cabinet and the Conservative Party as a whole, and in a pretty big chunk of the country, is a, is a deep scepticism about the EU and what it's about and what it achieves. And therefore, a real difficulty in, in to turning around saying, right, now that we're out, we can go back to a sort of normal, pragmatic relationship. And the prime minister's, you know, having uh, under Lord David Frost, Lord Frost, you know, he he put somebody who took a fairly combative approach to the post-Brexit relationship. They'd struck a very thin trade and cooperation agreement with the EU. That meant that there's a lot of friction being brought into the border because the UK is properly out of the Single Market and Customs Union, coming with that are new border frictions. If not tariffs, there are standards and regulations, checks that need to be done on farm products. You can't export services out the same way. And more of that's going to happen this year, by the way, because a lot of more stuff is coming into place in 2022. So in that sort of slightly combative environment, it's very difficult at the same time to say, ah, but we need to be partners on foreign policy. So the starting point, I think, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, was Britain trying to look for its foreign policy beyond the EU. 
the integrated view talked about European security being important, but the UK did that through NATO and increasingly through sort of bilateral arrangements uh, with individual countries, with Poland, for example, striking up a sort of cooperation uh, agreement with them in particular, one with Greece, interestingly enough as well, with some sort of what are called plurilateral groups of countries uh, arrangements, the Joint Expeditionary Force, which is a combination of Northern European, NATO and EU members, and the UK kind of convenes them to to look at, uh, at security. So everything was about not... The EU, if you see what I'm saying. And with the EU, we're stuck with the Northern Ireland Protocol, a really scratchy, difficult hangover things. The EU is not is blocking the UK's, or one or two member states are blocking the UK's proper participation in the EU's R&D project called Horizon 2020, seen by some as a way of trying to keep some British universities and others out of some of the crown jewels of, uh, of, of European R&D. So... You've got a scratchy relationship, and the UK did not want to have a formal security treaty. Sorry, well, Boris Johnson chose not to create a formal framework to coordinate on, on European security. So all of this means that we went into this uh, in a difficult way. Obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has changed the context fundamentally because the EU has stepped up more quickly than people expected. The US is working closely with the EU. And to the extent the UK has a close relationship with the US, you know, we're going to have to kind of find a way to commit as well to the EU. But I suppose my point is the mental gymnastics for the prime minister are very difficult. I think the foreign secretary, Liz Truss, has tried to strike a more pragmatic tone. Some of the other cabinet ministers have as well. But the prime minister's identity is built around this. And he and President Macron have a, certainly since the Australia-UK deal, which was done with the US, is done uh, at France's expense. And um, they lost a whole huge submarine deal as a result of it. That relationship is really bad still today at a personal level. That whole failure to kind of move on and to think, think differently. I wonder, is that, do you see that also coming partly from the EU? as well the institutions or the states as well i mean like is there is there a danger that actually there's been damage done <laughs> to the way that both sides think about how how this relationship works the way eu member governments many citizens and leaders of eu institutions look at the uk right now is at best skeptically there's a sense that this government didn't know what it was getting itself into Okay, it was a referendum. It was cleanly won and, and with a pretty large majority in, in the sense of, of what the vote of, of, of how these referenda play out. And so I think the EU accepted, you know, and there's not, there's not efforts to kind of try and turn it around. But having accepted it, the EU is very much a legal construct. And therefore, the British kind of common law approach, which is you kind of do things by trial and error, hit and miss, build the law around the precedent rather than having the law in place and then preventing precedent from happening means that the two sides approach the future relationship from different ends of the telescope. The EU saying, well, you chose to be out of these structures and these laws, so we're going to have to impose all of the barriers and all of the things that mean being outside the EU entails. So if you fly over to Spain or France, you know, you're off onto the other side of the passport lane and having your passport stamped as you go in and out. Whereas if you land in the UK, still today, there's the same line for EU members still using their biometric passports, along with, by the way, Americans, South Koreans, Australians, and others. So UK, I mean, they might change that, but um, at the moment, the UK is not entirely tit for tat at these things. But 
That is what the EU is, a legal construct. And of course, their fear is at some deep level for some of them. So you say in the EU institutions, not all the governments, not the citizens, but in the institutions, that if the UK were to leave the EU and immediately be successful outside, it could feed some of the most more sceptical parties that came to the fore after the financial crisis in France, in Italy, in Germany to a certain extent, but in Poland, those more sceptical parties might say, oh, you know what, maybe there's some sort of halfway deal we could do. Because look, the UK has got a pretty good relationship with the EU outside, but it's not having to take any of those fixed positions and they can, when they want to change, change. So there's a sort of determination by the EU to follow through on the letter of the deal, which is both political and structural, and a British instinct to go, well, look, we're out now. Let's forget about all that. You know, we're very close together. We want to trade with each other. Surely there's a way to do this better. And Northern Ireland uh, and the protocol is the classic thing because this brings down to trust. Boris Johnson chose to have a border down the Irish Sea and therefore let Northern Ireland be still inside the single market and customs union. But he claimed that would lead to there would be no checks across the Irish border. Therefore, the Irish Sea. And of course, there are. And all that does is confirm to the EU members that they can't trust Boris Johnson because he signed up to a deal that he's now trying to undermine. He's just saying, well, let's just be pragmatic. But for them, pragmatism is, to go back to your phrase, having your cake and eating it. So we're, we're not in a good place. This is going to be a very scratchy relationship, at least up to the next election and through the next election. At that point, I think things will settle. But right now, it's bad. The reason I asked really about how Britain's being received in that way is is because obviously so much of the integrated review is couched in language around UK leadership on issues and how we're going to be shaping things. We're going to be out brokering agreements, facilitating dialogues between different sets of countries and things. I suppose my question really is over the last year, I mean, obviously you mentioned the G7, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. mentioned COP26 have we seen that the UK actually mm-hmm, does have mm-hmm. the capacity to play this role? We've got Liz Truss now talking about a network of liberty with Britain at, at the centre. But obviously you have the United States very much still in that kind of leadership role as well. So where do you think the UK stands in its kind of leadership aspirations? That's a very good question. I mean, I in the paper I wrote a year ago, I called it Global Britain, Global Broker, partly because it Sounded good. I mean, you know, GB, GB, <laughs> and, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> trying to get some sort of title that would at least have a ring. But also because I reckon that the best the UK could hope to do in these early years, and hope to do sounds negative, but actually a positive contribution, given that the UK, although outside the EU, is still a core member of NATO, the UN Security Council, the Commonwealth, the G7, the G20, you know, the, the lists go on, five, five eyes, you know. There is scope for the UK to play in lots of different environments, including networking in, as it does through the G7 and the G20, in with the EU. But that given the fact that it's sort of an outsider to the EU, its main regional organization, and it doesn't have the scale or size of the United States or China, I thought that brokering, and I was bringing people together, acting as a sort of uh, a networking country, would be the right ambition. Now, of course, that doesn't fit with a government that said, no, we're leaving you because now we can be great again in a way. So the government preferred the term shaper. 
If I think of where the UK has been successful in the last year, it was brokering a deal on COP26, and it was brokering the emergence, convening, and there's other terms you can use as well, the emergence of a G7+, plus, which is a thing I sort of mentioned in the last paper, which I focus on in this paper, a G7 that is more just the sort of Western countries plus Japan, but that starts to include a more diverse group, at the very least Australia, South Korea, India on certain things, on other things we're not going to agree, as we can see on India's position on Russia and, and Ukraine. And that is going to require the UK to kind of sit back a little bit in the seat and rather than trying to lead, sort of trying to convene people and try to help bring solutions about. Yeah, I was calling it brokering. If you want to call it shaping, that's fine. You know, you know one's a slightly more positive term and the other's a slightly more passive term. But is the UK capable of doing that? Actually, it sort of can. Let's look at one example, trade. On global trade, the US cannot step forward and use trade architecture as a way of trying to thicken out the relationship of liberal democracies that are confronting China and Russia in their different ways. Whereas the UK opened negotiations last year to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership, now called the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, CPTPP, crazy acronym, but there we go. But it's made up of Japan is the lead country in it, but it's got a whole slew of countries across Southeast Asia and touching on the Pacific border of, of, of Latin America, excluding the US because the US pulled out. Trump said he wanted nothing to do with it. To be honest, I'm not sure if Hillary Clinton had won, she wouldn't have been able to do it. There's a sort of very trade-skeptical view right now. The UK, however is potentially going to become a member of the CPTPP, the first, in a way, non-Pacific country to join it. The US can't because the politics are too difficult. But by Britain going in and the EU, because it's a slow-moving, too many compromises to do across 27 member states on farming and all sorts of cars and so on, the UK can be a bit more flexible in that space. And if it comes in there, then it'll become a little bit of an architect of some of the digital trade regulations that the CPTPP has majored in, if I can call it that, then it has a slightly more credible voice to bring to the G7 debate on this, which Japan is at as well. Then the Japan, Japanese and the UK can say, well, look, you know, we've been discussing the stuff in the CPTPP. Um, I think there is space for it to play this convening role that an intelligent government can do. Can we talk a bit about Ukraine then? And and obviously there's there's so much to say about this crisis and the implications not just for the region but the world. But I wonder if we could just begin. What has been your general impression of the UK's response? Because obviously it is contested in the sense that, you know, a lot of people are saying, why aren't we doing more on the kind of humanitarian side of things? But others are sort of saying, well, you know, we've we've really contributed on the defence kind of area. But what's been your overall take, I suppose? Yeah, I suppose it it does have echoes of the overall integrated review, because you're right, the the slightly kind of harsh, slightly callous side of this government, I can't really say Britain, because that'd be unfair, I think on, on everything that Britain and the United Kingdom bring together, you know, from the civil society to business to, to everything. But, you know, the government was elected, to take a tough line in part uh, on immigration and to swivel and pivot away from that, even under this kind of crisis, is the government has struggled. And it was not, you know, it was on the back foot, as it has been uh, on asylum 
requests in general for the last number. And I have some stats in the in the paper of what a laggard the UK is on asylum uh, and refugee applications right now. And the same happened with this. So it kind of echoed a little bit the failure of the global resilience agenda, the integrated review. On the defence side, however, as with the integrated review, the UK has been well in the lead. And I said it was supporting Ukrainian forces well before uh, even the build-up of Russian supposed forces for an exercise last summer and then into the, into the autumn and supplying help not just to on training but even to the Ukrainian Navy and trying to help them get some minesweepers together. A lot of that all been sunk and destroyed now. But they, they've seen Ukraine since 2015 as a frontline country that they needed to support. And in the most practical sense, the kind of training that the UK gave the Ukrainian forces uh, on the use of the anti-tank weapons that they then supplied them with has, well, you can tell, uh, really paid off in a material way, not just the weapons themselves, but the training on how to operate against a a force with superior numbers and, and hardware. I think the sharing of intelligence, you know, the way that we're in sync with America again, turned out to be right. And that kind of five eyes, but also bilateral, very, very close, GCHQ, uh, UK intelligence with US intelligence side uh, proved to be strong. And the UK's forward-leaning position on um, being a framework nation, contributing to the defense of the Baltics, adding physical troops. So in any case, on that whole side, the UK, I can put it this way, is, is being on the right side of that conflict. And I think this idea that uh, they've not tipped over it, you know, they've not gone over there and say, well, no-fly zones. They're, they're very much in the zone that NATO's credibility would be undermined if you then committed more than NATO could commit to. But that this is, tr- is truly about Europe, the future of European security, and Ukraine is pivotal to that, and its survival is pivotal to that. So I, I, I just think it's a consistent, forward-leaning line. The, the, the places where the UK has been out of sync have either been tied into domestic politics, as I said, on, on the, let's call it the refugee side, and also on this hangover of, you know, is London, as our UK, as our report put out last December, the UK's kleptocracy problem, where having been a, f- a leading country on sanctions since Brexit, even under Dominic Raab when he was there, he really pushed forward the UK's sanctions policy. And we tended to be in the lead quicker than the EU on sanctions on Belarus, on Myanmar, even on Xinjiang, uh, the UK, uh, on, on China for uh, human rights abuses in, in Xinjiang. The UK was very much in the lead. But on the way Russians and others have laundered money through the UK. That's been an Achilles heel of of, of the UK's for a long time. And they just couldn't fix it in three months. You know, they were playing catch up the whole way through. So yeah, look, like everything, it's a a bit of a mixed record. But net, I'd say the UK is playing it right. I don't want to have it like some, it's not a game in terms of who's scoring better than others. The UK is physically and materially contributing to a country trying to survive as a democracy against an authoritarian invasion, the likes of which we've not seen for 70 plus years. So just to broaden it out a bit as well, then another debate that's happening very much in, um, I guess, particularly in the US at the moment, but also here in Europe is the extent to which this crisis is going to see a resurgence of 
what people call the liberal international order or the rules-based international system, however you want to phrase it. And this kind of sense maybe in some circles that the kind of the West is back in inverted commas, like we're seeing the US and Europe really coordinate on these on this response. And, you know, it's a, a big vindication of, of all of these kind of principles that we've been talking about. And it shows that when we get our act together, we can act <laughs> in, a, mm-hmm. in an efficient mm-hmm. way, effective way. I just wondered, first off, do you buy that as a view? Mm, Do you think mm. we are seeing this sort of resurgence? And if so, what are the implications for the UK? Because one way, I guess, of thinking about it is, you know, what we're seeing is maybe a bit more of a solidification of blocks in the world Mm, and mm. the geopolitics of that, particularly if you want to be a kind of mercantile, flexible country with diverse relationships with different parts of the world, that could actually become more complicated if the West doubles down and says we're working with democracies and not with authoritarian states? It's a very interesting question. (laughs) I think that what is emerging out of this crisis is a reunited, reunified transatlantic alliance, which has always been focused principally in its cohesiveness on the threat from Russia. So by confirming that threat, the Russians have done the transatlantic alliance a favor. The defense spending that Germany is now involved in, Trump could never accuse Germany again as he did before. Uh, and to the extent that they actually reduce their dependence on oil, gas and coal from and other minerals and materials from Russia, again, that US accusation that uh, Europe was free riding on America will be much harder to sustain. So even if you have a change in administration in four years, three years' time to something harsher towards Europe, in a way that's changed fundamentally structurally. I think there is also a bigger West, which I don't call a West, (laughs) a bigger G7 plus liberal democratic community where certain countries realize that they have to hang together. If you're Japan or South Korea or Australia, you better be with Europe and America against Russia there if you want Europe and America to be with you uh, on the rising threat from China. And the fact that China is not going to let go of Russia through this, it's a bigger conversation, but everything I see and everything I assess right now is that China's decided that although they're not going to give material support to Russia, they are not going to abandon Russia and they will stick to this no limits friendship and partnership going forward. And that's what they've said and that's what they seem to be doing because they believe that ultimately America was always going to hold China down. And if they were always going to hold China down, they're going to need Russia. A weaker Russia means a weaker China. So they're not going to actively undermine Russia, even though they're not going to actively support them on the Ukraine conflict. But that subtle differentiation is not going to cut it in European capitals or in Washington, D.C. And that means that we will have a somewhat more divided world, hence the title of my paper, between Russia and China, not an alliance, but swimming together, and Europe, U.S., Europe obviously includes the U.K., but other key allies around the world. Now, that's still a relatively small group. And so the reason we're not kind of going back to blocks of sorts is that the non-aligned movement, if you want to call it this time, is much bigger this time. And you look at the reactions of India, the Gulf states, South Africa, a lot of ASEAN to this conflict, how many of them abstained in the UN General Assembly vote as well as the UN Security Council vote to condemn Russia and chose not to outwardly condemn them, just abstain, despite the absolutely blatant breaking of international law. And what they say is, well, 
This is when international law suits you. You know, where was it on Iraq? Where were you on the responsibility to protect uh, on Aleppo? They see this in a less moral way, in a less fundamental values way. They reckon that America's approach to international law is highly selective. And, well, it has been, you know, uh, from the Paris Agreement through to the UN Law on the Sea, etc. The US is not signed up to all of those things, the International Criminal Court. So I think what you're going to end up with is a situation of a much stronger core liberal democratic community that will start to create networks of trade and mutual interdependence. And it won't just be the West. It won't be transatlantic. It will have an Indo-Pacific dimension. It'll be probably Northern Hemisphere more than Southern Hemisphere. But that will emerge and solidify. I think you know China and Russia will be doing their own thing. China might get a few people to back it on, I don't know, things like aspects of trade, RMB-denominated trade and so on. But those other countries are going to try to swim between this new G7 plus and China. Russia, in a way, gets cut a bit out of it because they need China for energy, for markets, for supplies, and they don't want to get pigeonholed into a world order in which America leads it. They don't want to be led by America. Europe is back to wanting an America that's at least like the Biden administration to be involved in leading it because it's part of their protection. But they also need to be ready for an America that maybe won't want to lead that group, you know, in the future. So this is why I said this G7 plus becomes an incredibly important vehicle for Britain, for Europe, and for other allies to hang together through what's going to be a very turbulent period. But it's not going to be a sort of bipolar world. I'm not even sure it'll be a multipolar world. It'll be a China and a Russia in one part of the world construct. It'll be the G7 plus and then the rest trying to triangulate between those two kind of groups, if we can call them. And what it means for, for Britain to a certain extent is that its network of liberty is actually the G7 plus. It's not as big as it's implied, but it's the G7 plus. But as Liz Truss said at Chatham House, we will have commercial relationships with countries that are not part of that liberal democratic network of liberty, as long as they're not undermining the G7 plus liberal democracies. And this government sees Russia, and I would see Russia definitely as trying to undermine that community. This government sees China as actively seeking to undermine it. That is more debated, I'd say, in Europe, even probably in parts of the US, where the Biden administration are trying to summon many of them. Oh, there's still a debate within it as to whether you push China completely into that corner or not. But it just means that the UK will be able to have relationships that go well beyond its network of liberty, that are strong, that are commercial, but they are seen in the light of the contest with Russia and China. And trying to get allies over to your side, well, allies is too strong a word, partners over to your side, even if they're not part of the network of liberty. That's really interesting. And so do you think that's going to take place more on a kind of issue-by-issue issue basis as well? It's I, think, be... I think it'll be broadly trade. Yeah. This, this country is going to be very opportunistic about trade. I think the EU increasingly will as well, and probably America as well, which is to say, look, just because human rights in Saudi Arabia are dreadful, you know, if we can have a deal with the GCC, we'll do it. ASEAN includes Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam is a one-party state. It just, they happen to be on the other side of the conflict with China on the South China Sea. So we'll be doing deals with them. Egypt, dreadful human rights record, basically controlled by the army, but 
if it can be kept off the side of Russia uh, or China, then maybe a deal will be done with it. So it's going to be a much more sort of pragmatic world of that sort on the trade side in particular. But when it comes to sort of, you know, the contested space will be internet governance, you know, under what rules do you do that? Where, where does this kind of China-Russia view that individual rights must come second to individual, you know, individual rights must come second to state dominance, state rights, where in essence the state controls the individual rather than the individuals controlling the state. That division, I wrote about this in 2018, has been the fundamental fault line of the world. That's where we're on the two sides of the contest and where we're going to be trying to make sure that the middle group don't formally become part of their group and they're going to be trying to make sure that we don't hive them away at the same time. Thinking ahead then, obviously the Ukraine crisis is going to dominate the rest of this year, I'd have thought. But are there any other key moments or opportunities that you think we should be watching as UK watchers? <laughs> what what are the big kind of opportunities? And and then finally, if Liz Truss and her team were sat down in the media studio with us at the moment, the ask has gone out. <laughs> what would be your, I guess from your report, what would be your kind of key message for them? What what were you trying to, to get across? Just starting because it's, in my head, what you just said, I think the key message to, to this government is do your best to repair the relationship with the EU. We can see why it's going to be difficult. You know, uh, it is going to be difficult. But the mere effort of trying in, a, in an honest way uh, would help. Now, don't try it and then undermine it. If ultimately you can't, then better just to park it. There's nothing worse than going some of the way there, which I think was the view at the beginning of this year, and then have it undermined with a flippant comment to the Conservative Party by the Prime Minister. It's just undermine all of the effort, in which case don't make the effort. But obviously don't let things get worse and certainly don't let the, the Irish protocol blow up around this. And it takes two to tango on this, I get it. And the EU has not been helpful in many ways, but they are trying to be helpful. They've done a big step. That's important. I think the UK needs to work very closely with the US to try to make sure that the G7 is the principal vehicle for coordinating the liberal democracy sanctions approach to Russia. This shouldn't be a US-EU discussion. It's, that's not a sufficiently inclusive group, in my opinion. And I think the Americans would be open to that, as long as the UK, it would help if the UK had a decent relationship with the EU, because then the EU wouldn't be trying to tell the US, no, 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 we'd rather do it bilaterally. So, you know, these things kind of inter interlace. If the UK fails to follow through on its vaccine commitments for this year, and the commitments made on the margin of the G7 to provide the vaccine production technology and capacity, not just shipping vaccines out. If it fails to live up to that, if it fails to deliver on the 100 billion a year commitment uh, to support developing countries with their climate transitions, if, if we fail to deliver those things, that'll be deeply damaging to Britain's credibility. And then to that swing state that I was describing earlier, Britain's ability to be part of that community, making sure the swing states don't drift over to the China side of, of the global divide, will be undermined. And we might save 300 million, 400 million pounds this year, but we're spending those kinds of money on all sorts of domestic things right now. And the whole point of foreign policy is, of course, you don't spend a, it's a minuscule proportion compared to what is spent on domestic politics. But the world is so complicated right now and so uncertain. And Britain's interests are so wrapped up in a better world that to fail on that global resilience agenda, 
I think would be deeply damaging. Yeah, um, on Ukraine, I mean, I think uh, sadly, our time, you know, a lot of government effort, quite rightly, is going to be focused on how this war pans out. Let's not forget, this war is far from over. And there's a danger that it could escalate and could escalate outside Ukraine and that NATO could end up in some type of standoff with, with Russia. I mean, you know, I, I'm, the government I know is thinking about these risks. It has to game them out. So stuff could spiral into a very dangerous place yet. And the job of government right now, I think above all, is to avoid that. Yeah. Sobering way to finish. But Robin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope you found it as interesting as I did to record. And many thanks again to Robin for joining me for this episode. If you want to find the report that we discussed, it's available on the Chatham House website. I should just note at this point as well, just some news about the podcast in general and what you're going to be hearing from us over the next few weeks. Obviously, as you'll be aware... We've not actually covered the events in Ukraine substantially on the podcast so far. The situation has been very fast-paced and it's been difficult to know for sure exactly how we can cover this. To address that, we have been working on a mini-series thinking about the medium-term implications of the crisis across a whole range of different policy areas, which is going to be an eight-part series, at least to begin with, And it's going to take over the Undercurrents feed over the next couple of months. I believe you will hear the first episode next week as I record this. And it will be coming out weekly over April and May and into June. And it's presented by a friend of mine, Ned Sedgwick, who uh, is not at Chatham House, but who has a long career in podcasting, which is very exciting. We will be back sporadically, I think, or potentially at the end of this series, depending on how things are going. But I just wanted to make you aware that that change will be taking place, but it is a temporary change. So for the foreseeable future for me, it's uh, goodbye for now. Thank you very much for sticking with us till the end of this episode. As ever, if you enjoyed what you heard, please do leave us a review or subscribe on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this because it makes it way easier for other people to find us. And if you want to keep up with the rest of Chatham House's work, the best place to do that is our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or by following us on Twitter at Chatham House. Till next time, thanks very much for listening.